Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Eli back with you. Welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Today we're talking about Couples therapy, specifically the most empirically supported form of couples therapy. That's IBCT, Integrative Behavioral Couples Therapy. And you can't think of that without thinking of its predecessor, Behavioral Couples Therapy, originally known as Behavioral Marital Therapy. And that was with Neil Jacobson. And as we've done deeper dives into the great model developers of couples therapy, with Sue Johnson and EFT and... Most recently, we've talked to Norm Epstein and Don Balkum of Cognitive Behavioral Couples Therapy. You'll see Neil Jacobson as a common factor to all things deriving from both the empirical science of couples therapy, learning from what didn't work as far as revising models, and somebody that's going to share unique insight into his partnership with Neil, but also his career in his own right, is co-founder of IBCT, Dr. Andy Christensen. Dr. Andy Christensen is a distinguished research professor of psychology at UCLA, where he conducts research on couple conflict and couples therapy, and he also still teaches and supervises. He's a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of California and has a part-time private practice. He's devoted his whole career to the advancement of evidence-based treatment for couples in distress. Along with Neil, he developed IBCT, which is an empirically supported form of couples therapy. For the last 30 years, he's been studying the effectiveness of couple therapy, specifically IBCT, usually with federal grant support. And in 2010, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs adopted IBCT as one of its evidence-based treatments for couples. He'll talk about that today. Since then, he's been training VA therapists in IBCT and evaluating the impact of this therapy. Along with his collaborator, Brian Doss, he's really started an innovative new online self-paced concept called MyRelationship.com. He'll talk about it today, and we'll also talk into the probably two most important books. The first one is called Reconcilable Differences, and that's for couples. And then there's the Therapist Manual, a new version coming out later in 2020, but you might know it as Acceptance and Change in Couple Therapy. All right, pleased to be joined on the AAMFT podcast today by someone I've been wanting to talk to for a long time, Dr. Andrew Christensen. Can I call you Andy? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, And he is one of the founders of, when I think of the art and science of couples therapy, I think of integrative behavioral couples therapy. We're going to talk all about that today and learn a little bit about the man behind the model, a true scientist practitioner, Dr. Andy Christensen. So uh, first question we always ask on the podcast, Andy, is how did you even get interested in working with couples to start with? Your well, origin I, story. Sure, sure. I um, I went to graduate school at the University of Oregon, and I came there uh, interested in uh, anxiety. It was probably one of those cases of 
where uh, research is me search. You know, I was kind of anxious at the time and thought I would uh, study anxiety. And I got together with a guy who, and we were looking at social anxiety. And we were looking particularly at couples who were very dating shy. And so my very first, my master's thesis was on a program where we would match couples who had very little dating experience, college students. We would match them in a kind of computer match program for a series of what we called practice dates. Then we looked at, um, the goal wasn't to match them with their soulmate or anything, but to match them with a partner and see if just experience and practice would reduce some of their anxiety, increase the frequency of their social interaction. And Where it, are we now in the early mid seventies? This is about the, the early mid seventies. Exactly. Yeah. So this is a precursor before you had your algorithms for match.com and you were exactly. swiping to the right. Wow. Very interesting. What did you, so what, what did, what that started a research bug in you? So before you thought about working with couples clinically, you were interested in studying them. Yeah, exactly. And so, so uh, that kind of got me focused on couples research wise. And then I, as part of my as part of my clinical supervision practicum, I took the practicum under Robert Weiss, who's one of the originators of behavioral couple therapy. And he's a very dynamic guy and got very influenced by him. And he supervised my very first couple. And I just got very interested in couple in work with couples. But it was primarily clinically because I still stayed for a while in social anxiety. Then I started working in families. I did my dissertation on family therapy. And it wasn't until I kind of had my internship and worked with Monica McGoldrick on family therapy and that I really started focusing away from families and more on the couples. I came to UCLA. I started becoming a couples therapist. Well, you mentioned Monica. We've had her on the podcast. She is quite a, a pioneer and also a character. So what were you, just quickly before we get to your your long and storied career at UCLA, what were you doing with Monica? Well, she was, uh, she was one of my supervisors at, uh, at Rutgers. I did my internship at Rutgers. And so here I was coming from this very behavioral couple therapy background. And then Monica got a hold of me and, and you know, gave me a whole view into systemic family therapy. And, and she is a wonderful supervisor. And so I, I was kind of influenced in that. More importantly, it uh, just revved up more of my interest in couples in particular, families in general, but couples in particular. All right. So if we're playing Connect the Dots and Name Association, you can't think of Andy Christensen without thinking of the late, great Neil Jacobson. And I think certainly had he not passed away prematurely, he would even be more well-regarded within the MFT world than he already is. So when I think of, of Neil, I think of well, as we used to call it, behavioral marital therapy. And if you were getting trained working with couples 30 years ago or more, this is all that you were getting trained in. So that's what you were doing. And when we think of that, we think of behavior exchange and problem-solving communication techniques. And if there was no behavioral marital therapy, now known as traditional behavioral couples therapy, there would be no integrative behavioral couples therapy, which we're going to talk about today. When did you first meet Neil? I, I, he actually, when I was on internship, he stopped by 
Rutgers because he was considering that as an internship site. He, he, he ultimately decided to go to Brown. But I just briefly met him there. But really, my, my connection with Neil came about through one of my, through Gayla Margolin, who's a uh, faculty member at uh, University of Southern California, was a graduate student with me at the University of Oregon. And she and Neil wrote the book on uh, behavioral marital therapy, which you mentioned. And that came out in 1979. But the two of them asked me to be a reviewer of the book. So they asked me to review every chapter that they wrote and give them feedback about it. And so that was my first real professional connection with Neil. And that was in the, the 1970s. But then I saw Neil occasionally and uh, had interactions with him, but, but nothing particularly close until in the early 90s, he invited me to the University of Washington uh, to give a research colloquium, but then also to give a clinical presentation. Uh, so I did the research colloquium to the whole department, but then for the clinical group, I gave a clinical presentation and I gave it with some trepidation on my concerns about traditional behavioral couple therapy or what was called behavioral marital therapy at the time. Right. Yeah, for our listeners that are not familiar with that, I mean, this was uh, an empirically supported model. And Neil, what was so groundbreaking about Neil is that he not only is a model developer, but he used his own research to, to see the limitations in his model, which led to his collaboration with you. So could you talk about what the problems were with some of the couples that underwent behavioral couples therapy, who it worked for and who it didn't? So the uh, majority of couples responded to behavioral marital therapy, but there were a third that did not. And of those who responded by one or two years later, uh, many had relapsed. And so clearly it wasn't as powerful as we had hoped. It was, it was disappointing in that regard. And then clinically, we saw that, you know, traditional behavioral marital therapy is very focused on change, you know, sort of people specifying the things that they want from their partner, doing communication and problem-solving training to try to structure positive change so partners do more of what the other wants. And what became very clear to us is sometimes there was a limit, there was often a limit to how much partners were able or willing to change in the way the other partner wanted them to change. And so that raised for both of us this issue of acceptance that, you know, certainly change is positive and good when it can happen, but uh, acceptance is a crucial part of a successful relationship, given that none of us are fashioned perfectly to be perfectly matched with anybody else. I think one of the biggest contributions to the field and to the way I think about couples, because as you were saying before this, it used to be predicated on the idea that all problems are solvable. Exactly. If you just do what they say, if you just do your active listening and you do your behavioral exchanges, but we know that's not the case, that many problems are not solvable. It's kind of in the mix that no matter how couples try, it is something that is a perpetual issue or something that is gridlocked, it can't be solved. So when I think of your contributions, uh, I mean, acceptance and tolerance, those two catchwords, which is really the integrative part of be integrative behavioral couples therapy. I mean, it's 
I think one of the most significant things to advance the field of couple therapy, at least in the way we practice in a long time. Can you tell me those, it sounds like it's that kind of started not only through the findings of the research, but also this talk when Neil invited you up to Washington. Can you talk about those early conversations with you and Neil as you begin to revise what was the gold standard in couples therapy at the time? So I gave this clinical talk where I talked about the directions I was going in couple therapy. And right afterward, I was a little bit, you know, nervous about that, what Neil's reaction would that be, that because I was deviating from the, you know, her, uh, you know, I was going to be labeled a heretic or something. But in fact, afterward, he said, you know, Andy, that's exactly the direction I'm going. And so let's write a grant and study it together. And that was Neil, you know, he just was ready to jump on board. Uh, with a new development. And so I thought about it for a little bit because I didn't actually know him that well, but it sounded good and that started our collaboration. So we we wrote a grant to do kind of a pilot investigation and we did that. It came out well and then we wrote another grant to do a much more detailed multi-site clinical trial of uh, uh, evaluating integrated behavioral couple therapy. But it really started with that a visit to the University of Washington and the clinical talk and him saying, yes, we're both uh, kind of going in the same direction. All right. So if you, we'll, we'll talk about these great resources uh, available if you want to learn more about integrated behavioral couples therapy. Andy has a, a book really written for clinicians. It is a living manual, acceptance and change in couple therapy. And then one written for the general public, which is also great read and, and something you could recommend to your clients if you're out there listening. So when we talk about acceptance and change techniques or acceptance and tolerance techniques, Andy, cue our listeners in on exactly what we're talking about there. And also define um, the difference between acceptance and tolerance. Uh, first of all, let me mention that our book for therapists, which Neil and I wrote together and was published in the late 90s, it is being revised, and in fact, I'm going to be turning in the final copy to the, uh, the publisher this coming Monday. And so in 2020, a revision will be out of this uh, therapist manual for uh, integrated behavioral couple therapy. And the title will be changed. Uh, the main title will be integrated behavioral couple therapy. Just, so just uh, a little note to listen. Let me make a, a first of all, the distinction between acceptance and change. I mean, they're both changes, but with change, we're typically talking about change in the doer of the behavior or in the actor. If someone is short or curt and you have them change, then they speak more kindly. Or if someone is not very affectionate and they change, then they're more affectionate. So that's the change that we talk about when we're typically talking about change. When we talk about acceptance, it, it's, of course, a change, but it's change in the response of the recipient. So it's someone being able to tolerate or accept that the other person is short and curt without getting so emotionally aroused by it or accepting that the other person is not as affectionate as, as they might like and uh, not having such a strong emotional reaction to it. So they're both changes, but one is a uh, one is a, a change in the actor who's doing the behavior, 
and one is in the recipient who's receiving the behavior. And, and we distinguish between, we kind of put acceptance on a continuum. At the one end is acceptance, uh, where you're kind of seeing the positive, even in things that are less, you know, not always desirable, uh, where you're sort of more actively embracing something. So, for instance, let's say I have a partner who's very ambitious, and I really love that about her. Uh, but there's a downside to that, as there are to inequality. So maybe she doesn't have as much time to make the home a, a wonderful little place, or doesn't have as much time to cook or clean, or, or maybe I have to do more of that than she does. So that might be a downside. But if I embrace that quality of her, I see that it has both good and bad qualities, but I'm not rejecting that quality of her because I can see that almost all qualities have an up and a downside. Tolerance is more toward the other end of the continuum. It's for those things that, that maybe you don't see much of an upside to, uh, but they just kind of come as part of the package, because whenever we get together with any other human being, we're getting a package of characteristics. And I like to say we don't have, uh, you know, a line item veto where we can, you know, veto a few of the characteristics that they have. Tolerance is is a little bit like distress tolerance in uh, dialectic behavior therapy. It's kind of experiencing some discomfort at something that your partner does. But rather than reacting and often react in a way that may problem even worse, you just tolerate that. So that's a little bit of the difference. Between Would it be fair to say that I, I want to, using the model, I want to work my acceptance strategies first, and then if those aren't working, I want to move to tolerance? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes tolerance strategies are not, are not needed, but sometimes they're, they're very helpful. Right. Yeah, we'll talk specifically what those those types of strategies and interventions looks like in a second. But one of the things that is also great about this model is what I really like is the attention to detail of coming up with a formulation, a theme for the couple. Because many therapists, they have an idea what's going on and they see things working with couples systemically, that it's not all your fault. It's not all her fault. It is this shared cycle. However, they may think they know what's going on, but unless you have a couple buy into that, you not only may hurt your alliance, you don't have a really place to, to start from as far as the best themes are balanced, non-pathologizing, each person can buy into. Your model does a great job of laying it out there. Talk a little bit about how important that is and the early assessment phases of IBCT and how they get the buy-in from the couple around a theme. Okay. Uh, and let, let me give an example. So, you know, when couples come in, they have a lot of, they have a lot of, often have a lot of complaints about the other. And so they can give you a laundry list of the things that they don't like or that bother about the other. But usually those complaints are centered around one or two core things. And those are, those are themes we try to identify. And we try to identify them for the couple. But then we also do what we call a deep analysis of that. And by deep analysis, 
it's an acronym that refers to our understanding of how problems come about, that they come about because, first of all, the D is differences between partners, natural differences. The first E is emotional sensitivities and reactions between partners. The second E is external circumstances, particularly stressors. And then finally, the P is the pattern of interaction that goes on as they try to solve this problem, and it often makes it worse. And let me give you an example. Let's say a couple has, this is a common theme in couples, a couple has a theme around trust. And so a lot of their arguments are around that. And let's say that we understand this problem in the following ways. There, there's some fundamental differences. Let's say that she's always been kind of more flirtatious or more sociable than he, and he's been more of a quiet, shy kind of guy. Let's say in terms of their emotional sensitivities, maybe he had a partner who cheated on him in the past or his parents cheated on each other. So he's very sensitive to cheating. And maybe his partner, she has some sensitivities about being controlled, that, that in a previous relationship she was with a very controlling guy or someone she perceived as very controlling. And so the idea of someone telling her what she can do and what she can't do, that really hits a raw spot. And so there you have some of the differences, some of the emotional sensitivities. And then let's take a look at the next E, the external circumstances. Maybe the circumstances are such that she's in a work setting with a lot of potentially attractive romantic partners or has to travel a lot. Or maybe it's that he has to travel a lot, but he gets really worried when he's out of town for a few days about what she's doing. And then we go to the P, the pattern of interaction, that a common pattern in a trust issue is where he will start asking, kind of almost interrogating her or checking up on her or looking at the credit cards. And she doesn't like this kind of interrogation. It makes her feel controlled. And so she stops sharing with him. And she may hide some things, not because she's doing anything that she thinks is wrong, but just because she doesn't want the third degree. And so she starts avoiding these kind of conversations. So they're, they're doing things that, from their perspective, make sense, but actually make the problem worse. Because the more that she, the less she's open with him, and the more she hides things from him, that raises his anxiety, and that increases his interrogation, his investigation. But of course, the more he investigates and interrogates, the less likely is that she'll be forthcoming and open with him. So their pattern of interaction which is meant to solve this struggle they're having around trust actually makes the problem worse. Yeah, the, the problem becomes the way they attempt to solve the problem. Right. Yes, yeah. As you were describing that as a beautiful example of a, you know, we think in our general systems language uh, of a positive feedback loop and an, an escalation. So this model, again, what I love about it, though, is it frames the theme. Another one of my favorite IBCT themes is the artist and the scientist uh, in the sense that one is not better than the other. They're just different. And as you were saying earlier, what brings you together, what seems as a novelty and something that a curiosity or even you're attracted to at the beginning over the, the long term in a relationship becomes something that becomes a thorn in your side of your partner. So the goal is to really fit that theme. Now, if you're a strict proponent of the model, you're going to 
meet with the couple conjointly as we normally would together. And then you're going to have individual sessions before a feedback session on this theme. Can you explain the rationale behind that? Yes. Okay. So we meet with them conjointly. And then in the individual sessions, we meet individually um, because, first of all, we, for several reasons, we always want to ask in the individual session about uh, intimate partner violence because we know that couples who come for treatment, a fair percentage of them have some level of intimate partner violence. And partners are more likely to be able to share that openly if they're, if the other is not uh, around. Uh, and in fact, for some, this is an extreme example, but for some couples, they may be afraid to share that their partner is violent with them if the partner is present. So we want to always investigate intimate partner violence. We always want to investigate commitment and partners may be more open about their commitment or lack of commitment in the individual session. And also, speaking of commitment, they might reveal an affair or something like that. In our individual session, we offer them uh, confidentiality from the partner even. We tell them something like, you know, this is, a, even though I'm seeing you alone, this is still couple therapy, so I'm going to assume that anything you brought up can be shared with your partner. But if there is something that you want to keep a secret, you know, I will respect that. You know, because sometimes partners will talk about uh, maybe uh, sexual trauma that they had that they don't want their partner to know about, or they want to check with us about what we think, or, or they want to discuss the possibility of sharing. You know, you mentioned those two things, IPV, intimate partner violence, and then infidelity. Uh-huh. So, you know, we, we talk about acceptance, but the, you, certainly the model says there's some things that you never accept. So right. talk about uh, what would be the exceptions to the accept, uh, the acceptance rule, so to speak. Right, right. I mean, we're, we're never going to encourage people to accept something that's dangerous, that's illegal, that's a violation in their relationship. So we're not going to encourage partners to accept violence or to accept infidelity uh, or anything like that. Acceptance is, is for those things that happen between couples I like to say that the the sins of the um, the crimes of the heart are usually misdemeanors. <laughs> That's people good. Get, get most upset about, or you know, my partner wasn't very attentive to me, or wasn't responsive to me. She didn't even remember that I was going to get this award, or she, you know, little things like that. And they're not little because they they mean a lot to people, but they're not egregious violations. And so we're talking about acceptance for egregious violation so you've had your you so you have your individual sessions and then to give the couple this formation of how you see their pattern you have a what's called a feedback session talk about what goes on in the feedback session in the feedback session we uh we do two things first of all we go over theme that we uh, developed for them and this is an interaction because we don't have you know we don't necessarily have the the truth with a capital T here, this is all tentative. So we're telling them what we think is some of the core themes that are going on in their relationship and get their feedback. And then we give them our deep analysis of this theme. Again, with a back and forth, getting their buy-in on that or their additions to it. And when we do this, we, we try to use examples that they've given us in the joint and the individual sessions as illustrations. Like when we talk about the pattern, we may say, and remember you told me about that, what happened between the two of you when blah, blah, blah. Or uh, 
uh, when we're talking about some of their emotional sensitivities, like in the trust example, we might say, and Bill, I remember you telling me that your first girlfriend uh, cheated on you and how uh, upsetting that was for you. So we bring in material from the first three sessions to kind of illustrate and make the understanding of their theme richer to them and communicate to them that we really kind of understand what's going on. In almost all cases, the couples, uh, if we've done it at all competently, they have a buy-in. They, they feel like we've kind of got them. We got them in the sense of understanding them. And then in the second part of the feedback session, we outline how we will work together and treat. And so that is what constitutes the feedback session. Okay, so before we talk about the empirical support behind this great model, give uh, the listeners some concrete example of what these acceptance techniques are and tolerance techniques. So let's start with one of my favorites, unified detachment. Unified detachment. Well, let, let me back up a little bit. Our two sure. major acceptance strategies are a strategy to change the emotional experience of couples or, or have them have a different emotional experience. And, have, and then the second one is to have a different intellectual or analytic experience. So the head and the heart. The head and the heart. You got it. You got it. We think of those in terms of, of conversation. So the heart conversation is what we think of as a compassionate conversation. The head conversation is what we think of as an analytic conversation. And so with unified detachment, we try to get the couples to step back from their interaction, to metaphorically speaking, put down their weapons, go to the nearest hill, put on their binoculars, and take a look at what goes on between the two of them. We try to help them look at the sequence of what goes on. So, you know, when he does that, she does this. When she does that, he does that. And then they're off and running. And then it escalates from there. We help them see the pattern that they get caught up in. We do that in the feedback session, giving them the general pattern. But throughout therapy, when they debrief, an incident, the incident last Thursday night when they got into it with each other, we helped them go over that and kind of analyze it to see how the two of who don't start off the day wanting to hurt each other's feelings or make each other feel bad, somehow do things that trigger the other sensitivity and get a cycle going that then they get caught up in. So we help them see it as an it, not a you, as a dynamic or a dance or a pattern that they kind of both contribute to and we help them see in what ways they contribute to it. So that's the head conversation. And that's one way we call that unified detachment. We're trying to get them to be mindful, but in a dyadic way. We call it dyadic mindfulness. So in mindfulness, as, as most of the listeners will know, uh, that means holding back judgment, just looking at what happens without evaluating or judging it as good or bad. And so we try to get the couple, help the couple do that together in a kind of dyadic mindfulness. That's what we mean by unified detachment. And that's the analytic discussion we're trying to promote. Now, the other intervention is uh, empathic joining. You'll know both of them 
we're trying to bring the couples together. In empathic joining, we're trying to help them create a compassionate discussion where they have a heart-to-heart -heart talk, where they're sharing their emotions with each other, hopefully some that they may not have shared before or shared so fully before. We try to move them away from what we call surface emotions. That might be the first thing that pops up into their amygdala and, and, and talk about some of the hidden emotions, the emotions, often softer emotions that they may not share with their partner or they may be embarrassed to share with their partner. And that's the compassionate kind of discussion we're talking about. And so as a result of having more empathy from the partner, in empathic joining, or as a result of having a greater analytic sense of what goes on and how both of you get caught up in it, partners become more emotionally accepting of the dynamics that exist between the two of them. You know, that's another major difference in the evolution from traditional behavioral couples therapy to IBCT in the sense that, you know, early on this notion of quid pro quo, tit for tat, behavior exchange. That was seen as a good thing, but we believe now, you know, no, it's when you're connected to your partner, you keep, you stop keeping score. You're all in when you feel validated, when you feel understood in that heart conversation, as you were saying, that is really what makes you want to do more for your partner, not because it's written on a behavioral exchange technique. Exactly. And that, that goes to one of the big strategic differences between IBCT and traditional behavioral couples therapy and even, even cognitive behavioral couples therapy in that we're trying to create what we call spontaneous change yes, rather than deliberate change, rather than instructing them, you know, this is the way to talk, this is the way to problem solve, you know, list the things you want your partner to do, now why don't you do them? that kind of thing, or, or, you know, here's the right way to think about something. We try to bring about change through greater empathy, through greater understanding, and then partners will, as you were just talking about, will kind of automatically, because they care about the other person, try to make the other person happier or accommodate you. I think, too, again, going back to classic systemic language, I think of the difference of this behavior exchange is more first-order change and what you're doing with these increased empathy and validation skills are more of a, a longer lasting second order change in how the couple relates and connects to each other, which also gives me this principle of application. So if I'm doing, if, if, I, if I have been in the field a long time and I understand communication, problem solving skills, understanding behavior exchange, would I start the model using problem solving skills? And then when I get to one of these issues that is not solvable, is that when I would switch to acceptance or would I start with acceptance techniques? No, we, we almost always start with acceptance. And in fact, we're, we're, for the last 10 years, we've been rolling out, as they say, IBCT in the VA, namely training VA therapists in IBCT. And one of the challenges is people who are from the behavioral 
perspective, they meet it. They want to go in and immediately solve the problem, problem solving, or you know, doing an instruction. And we have to hold them back and do the acceptance stuff first, because sometimes the acceptance stuff is all that is needed. And if you get change and accommodation and greater satisfaction that way, we believe that's going to endure. That's going to maintain more. And we have some evidence for that. Rather than go in and try to teach a lot of new skills. Because we know that those don't maintain that well. People- yeah, let's talk about the evidence. When I think of it, it is an artful model, but it is also one of our most empirically supported approaches. It is the the science of couples therapy. So over this more than two decades of outcome research on IBCT, if you have to distill down for our listeners, we have a lot of research informed listeners, listeners that won't go on to create their own research, but we'll use these principles to stay up to date with the field of couple therapy. So what have we learned from all these years of IBCT research, Andy? Well, certainly um, learned that IBCT is an effective treatment. We've also learned that IBCT shows greater maintenance of change than some of the traditional therapy, you know, traditional behavioral couple therapy. And that was one of the the notions that we had, that uh, there might be greater maintenance of change when you take these kind of approaches. And so we've gotten that kind of evidence. Also, we've had some some interesting evidence that has, has changed how we do IBCT. For instance, our clinical trial, we were very, very cautious about intimate partner violence. And we focused at the time only on male to female intimate partner violence and and had pretty severe exclusion criteria. But then in subsequent research, we looked at the people who we rejected from our, our program because of intimate partner violence and found that most of those stayed together. Many of them sought therapy in the community. And also there's other research in the field that that couples who are violent with each other can be treated systemically in couple therapy. Now, you don't want to take a severe battering case or what uh, some researchers have called intimate terrorism. You don't want to take that kind of a case. But we're more open to taking couples with intimate partner violence into our treatment. As long as, there are are a couple of key points, as long as, number one, their goal is for a nonviolent relationship. The part will take responsibility for the violence. We try to get them to accept the notion that both partners are responsible for relationship problems, but only the partner who is violent is responsible for the violent act. And if the, the treatment is going to have a heavy focus on the interactions that may lead to, to a violent episode. So we broadened that category a little bit of acceptance of of couples with intimate partner violence. And we've, of course, looking at both male to female and female to male uh, partner violence, as well as as, uh, in same-sex couples. That's great in the sense that all, all domestic violence was lumped into one category. But as you said, intimate terrorism looks very different. Intimate partner violence as far as a situational violence in the sense exactly. that those are couples that are just passionate in love and passionate war and are trying to communicate. And with enough structure, 
uh, containment, they can go on to have very successful couples therapy. Absolutely. Speaking of that, as far as successful is what we talked about with Neil's work and the traditional model that a large percentage of the couples did not maintain their gains. What do we know about the follow-up and all of these long-term outcome studies? How, how do people, if it's more of a second order change as far as developing these acceptance techniques and really being able to make this work over the long haul, what has IBC told us in these these longitudinal follow-ups? Well, you know, we, we followed up, we did the longest follow-up of any clinical trial, five years, and we followed up about every six months. And what was interesting is that every six months for the first two years after treatment termination, IBCT couples maintained quite well and maintained their gains better than TBCT couples. Now, we didn't give any additional, additional treatment during any follow-up period, even though some of the couples clearly could have used booster sessions. And so the first two years looked quite good. Now, the last three years there was some loss in maintenance so that we think that some of these couples could have really benefited from the ability to come in occasionally to maintain their gains because we lost some of the maintenance from year three to year five. Uh, still, uh, you know, many couples maintain their gains, but, but not as many as had maintained it for the first two years. That raised the question for us that we, we dealt with only moderately to severely violent, I mean, severely distressed couples. We eliminated 100 couples who wanted treatment, but they weren't distressed enough because we wanted them to be distressed by a certain criteria and questionnaire measures, but also to be consistently distressed. They had to, to score a distressed at three different time points. So we really selected some of the most difficult distressed couples and for those couples, just giving them the treatment and then never seeing them again, it, for some of those, that's not going to be sufficient. So that was something kind of we learned from, from that work and that data. You, you are a humble guy, but you were also very much a scientist practitioner. I was watching this APA video of you that is fairly current. You're working with this very young couple using IBCT. Talk about the, the clinician in you. Do you still enjoy doing the clinical work, and how much of that do you get to do now, Andy? Uh, I have always enjoyed that, even though I've been an academic, you know, full-time academic my whole life. I have always set aside time to do couple therapy. My practice is almost exclusively couple therapy. I see probably an average of, I don't know, six to eight couples a week now, and I have been doing uh, couple therapy you know, throughout my career, and also not only doing couple therapy, but but part of my teaching at UCLA has been supervision of couple therapy. So I have kind of a couple therapy clinic at UCLA, and each year I supervise some graduate students uh, doing couple therapy. You've also had an amazing run at UCLA. How many years have you been there? You spent your whole academic career there. Uh, a whole academic career. I was. Uh, I'm now sort of semi-retired at UCLA, but I was there for a full 38 years. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a long stretch. Now, you know, the, the work, if I can say a little bit about the work that I'm most excited about. Please do. Um, yeah. First of all, for the last 10 years, I've been working with the Veterans Administration because they're rolling out IBCT, which means they're training their therapists across the country at IBCT. We've trained about 500 therapists so far. 
And that's been, uh, they have a very good training model. And, uh, that's kind of helped me sharpen how I present IBCT to, uh, you know, therapists. So that's been an exciting development. But the other exciting development is an online program, which is OurRelationship.com, www.OurRelationship.com. Over the last 10 years, uh, Brian Doss, who's now at the University of Miami, um, he was a graduate student of mine, he's taken the lead on this and developed, along with me, this online program based on IBCT. It consists of six to eight hours of, of time by the couple. There are things that the couples do independently, and then they come together and uh, share what they've learned independently, uh, guided by the program. And we have tested this now on over 1,400 couples. Right now, we have a major, Brian got a major a grant from the government to test this out with low-income couples. This program can be done on smartphones, and most low-income couples have a smartphone. And because they have very little time available, they have trouble you know, with transportation or childcare, getting to a therapist appointment. I think this is an ideal way to reach more people. And the results from this study are quite, quite encouraging. They're not as powerful as in-person therapy, but they are quite helpful to couples who definitely get a benefit from them. And even right. though it's six to eight hours of time, in one of our nationwide clinical trials, 86% of couples completed it. With the low-income couples, we get more like 70% complete these, both partners, six to eight hours of time. And they're getting some benefit from it, even at follow-up. So I'm very excited about that as a way of disseminating a couple therapy to a broader population. Yeah, I mean, when you think of really effective treatments, they're both efficacious. They can work in a very highly controlled setting as as IBCT has. They can work in the real world, meaning they're effective. And then there's also this other third level. They can be distilled down. They can reach an audience that wouldn't really even get traditional couples therapy. So this yeah. is like a relationship education with uh, IBCT infused in it that would go to target audiences that would normally not receive couples therapy, right? Right, exactly. And now I should say, even though it's an online program, online programs need to have some interpersonal contact. And so we have co what we call coach contact. These are not therapists, but trained coaches who spend, uh, have four meetings with them, usually over Skype or something like that for 15 minutes each, four 15 minutes. So it's not a lot of interpersonal contact, but people uh, uh, people are much more likely to be successful if they have some. So is this something anybody can go out and get if they want to do it, or do you have to be partnered up with an agency or a provider to get the curriculum? Any Anyone can do it. Anyone can go on ourrelationship.com and sign up for it. If you meet the criteria for a low-income couple, you'll be able to do it for free. If you want to just do it on your own, it costs $50 and you can you can do the program. But it's available for anybody. I will be, be sure to check that out. Now, you're a humble guy. You've had an amazing career. I always like to ask model developers of something that cannot be captured in a journal article or a manual like we talked about today, a, a self of therapist or something that you were proud of 
that uh, your normal humble self would like to brag about. You know, it captures something about you that most listeners to a podcast like this would not know. Okay, well, uh, one, one thing is I, I come from very humble beginnings. I was, uh, I was raised on a chicken farm in Mississippi. Wow. Uh, my parents were immigrants from Denmark, and there was a small Danish community in Mississippi. My father kind of had the equivalent of a GED. He didn't finish high school. He came from Denmark when he was very young. So I, um, I came from very humble beginnings, but my parents had valued education very much and, and went to great lengths to get all of their three children educated, which I'm eternally grateful for. So that, that's one thing about me personally. Another thing about me personally is I love comedy and particularly comedy about couples. And so I'm a very uh, amateurish uh, stand-up comic. I have performed at a number of venues here in Los Angeles. You know, L.A. is a great place for that. If you're going to do that anywhere, you are at the right place. Now, do you, do you use the fact that you are a, a couple researcher and a couples therapist in your routine? Uh, sometimes I include that, but just as background, because because I focus on uh, you know some particular aspect of couples and and things like that. Or have a- all right, so now you you have to. And I'm putting you on the spot, but you got to give us some something to make us laugh here as we get ready to, to wrap up, because that's just too good tonight. I know you as this very humble and mild mannered academic. I, I would love to you to make our listeners laugh. Uh, well, I, I can just give you one. I have a routine where I talk about uh, ancient couple conflicts, so couple conflicts throughout uh, history, and um, and I'll give you one example from that. It's about the famous pharaoh, uh, Ramses II. He and his wife had difficulties because she was much smarter than he. So, for instance, she was a very literate woman. She had... Uh, she had, uh, you know, she had mastered hieroglyphics, whereas her husband had had hardly passed lower glyphics, <laughs> and she wouldn't, and she wouldn't listen to him. She would, she had a lot of great advice, and he wouldn't listen to her. But she told him, "Ramses, you're going to bankrupt us and the country with your crazy pyramid scheme." There you go, tying in your your husband wife dynamic. That's great. Look for him, uh, open mic near you in L.A. Last question. You know, you've accomplished so much. All these model developers that I've talked to over the last year and change on the podcast, they're still as passionate about what they do as they were years before. Uh, how do you want to be remembered in the field of couple therapy? And also because. You'll be so forever linked with him, and he passed away so early. How should Neil be remembered? Well, Neil, I mean, he was really, I mean, he passed away at the age of 50. It was really tragic. He was he was a brilliant guy. He made contributions in depression research, in uh, uh, battering or intimate partner violence, as well as in couple therapy. He was actually being considered for a MacArthur Genius Award toward the end of his life. I believe it was 20 years ago, right, Andy? What you just said, he was also an innovator and methodology and how we study couple therapy. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, he, he, he made uh, many innovations and he was just, uh, he was just a very unusual, uh, unusual character also. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, very, very kind of special person. I hope he will be remembered. My, I hope my legacy is, uh, is, you know, uh, two things really, integrated behavioral couple therapy and its various offshoots. But also, a lot of my research was on couple conflict, particularly the demand withdrawal pattern of couple conflict. 
and you know continues to be of interest in the field. But I think IBCT, that Neil and I and you know developed that, and uh, it's you know had a pretty good life so far. I cannot thank you enough. This has been a great hour. As I said, he's a a true gentleman and a scholar, Dr. Andy Christensen, and you can, greatest thing about this model is, again, the dissemination. Tell us one more time, again, the revised uh, book coming out in 2020, and also the book you and Neil wrote for couples that can go out yes. there and read as well, which still has held the test of time. Right, right. And that's actually been revised. That's uh, Reconcilable Differences. This is a book for couples. The second edition came out in 2014. And then Integrative Behavior, uh, Behavioral Couple Therapy will be the title of our revision for the therapist manual. Originally, it was Acceptance and Change in Couple Therapy. Now we're going to call it Integrative Behavioral Couple Therapy and put Acceptance and Change in the, in the subtitle. And that will be coming out in 2020. So those two books are available. Also, I would remind you of... Uh, the, to take a look at uh, ourrelationship.com, www.ourourrelationship, one word.com. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. It was great talking to you. Great talking to you. Really enjoyed it. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AMFT podcast. Andy Christensen, humble, funny, and I learned a ton there. And just when I think of the ideas of acceptance and tolerance, in working with couples. It is one of the things, as I mentioned in the interview, has influenced me most as a practitioner and a trainer and somebody that just really appreciates and studies the growth of our field because it's great when you can solve a couple problem, but most of the stuff out there, as we know, involves acceptance and tolerance of things that are probably not going to change and no better model to do that with than IBCT. Let's review a couple of the things. The OurRelationship.com, I think another way to disseminate to the general public. It's great if somebody is brave enough to say, I have a relationship problem and I want to come and see an MFT. But many times we have to reach people, especially in our environment that we're in today in this COVID-19 world where services are being distributed in different ways. Online delivery is more important than ever before. And that's what our relationship.com is all about. So whether you're an individual or a couple, I also love the idea that we can give relationship education, remove some of those barriers by targeting individuals and targeting couples. So both of these programs, very clean website, easy to understand, not a lot of hype, and affordable too. It's a one-time fee of $50, whether you're an individual or a couple. So I think this would be a resource as you're trying to get somebody to take a step towards therapy or an additional step for you to support them uh, as an MFT. I think ourrelationship.com, give it a give it a look. Also, drandrewchristensen.com, D-R-A-N-D-R-E-W Christensen, C-R-I-S-T-E-N-S-E-N.com. You can find out everything you need to know about Andy and what's coming up as far as trainings. Here at the AMFT Podcast, we'd love to hear from you. We're developing quite a following among mental health podcasts. We're rising up the charts. You can do your part in that by subscribing, liking, giving a star rating, leaving a review on any place you get your favorite podcast. Mine is favorite is Apple Podcasts, but you can go to Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. You can also go to the AMFT website where all of our back installments are archived. So you can catch up 
with other great couples therapy shows like the two-part interview we did with Sue Johnson to kick off, kick off the podcast series in January of 2019. You can also see the podcast I referenced with Neil Jacobson's work that his colleague Don Balcom with Cognitive Behavioral Couples Therapy referenced. Drop us a line. Easiest way to reach me is info at elikaram.com. E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. Get us on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Dr. Eli Live. The AMFTs is at the AMFT. Until next time, my friends, stay systemic. <laughs>